Audio conversation with Dr. Suzanne Gordon, recorded Thursday, July 25th, 2013. I first heard of Dr. Gordon earlier this year when I listened to a podcast on Mysterious Universe. She is a near-death experiencer researcher, and she has her own direct experience with uh, having had uh, an NDE, a near-death experience. Uh, I listened very closely. She talked a lot about not so much the actual events of the near-death experience, the white realm, uh, going through the tunnel, you know, that type of thing, meeting old relatives or acquaintances or God. Uh, She didn't really touch on that. What she did is she talked about the follow-up after effects of of that profound experience. And um, it struck me, and I really wanted to talk to her. I really wanted to check in with her because the list of things that she shared very much matched things that are related to the UFO abduction phenomena. Now, I'm just going to read from the initial uh, email that I sent Dr. Gordon. Uh, It should make perfect sense why I reached out to her. Hello, Dr. Gordon. My name is Mike Cleland, and I am doing research for a book. My focus is the UFO abduction phenomenon. I can imagine what you're thinking, but please keep reading. I listened to your excellent interview with the Australian folks at Mysterious Universe. There were a few things that you said that really piqued my interest. You spoke about a list of points shared by the near-death experiencers. Now, now I'm just going to go ahead and read off those bulleted points here. Sense of renewed life purpose. Changes in religious ideas. A sense of life mission. Life direction shifts. Priority shifts. Awareness of planetary issues. A shift in attitudes and feeling accountable for the planet. Psychic experiences paranormal experiences, weird synchronicities, difficulties. You describe the folks that have had near-death experiences as suffering from the trauma of enlightenment. Everything on this checklist closely matches what is reported by people who claim the UFO abduction phenomena, enough so that I am writing you this letter. Yeah, now, after that, I, I shared a few more things, and but I... I said I wanted to connect with her. I wanted to talk with her. I wanted to ask her some questions. I thought this was fascinating that the, the, I've, I had read about the overlap of the actual near-death experience, uh, the elements of what take place in the near-death experience, uh, and how that compares to what people experience under you know, having had a UFO abduction. Uh, there are very close parallels. What was more fascinating to me is, is in her research, she uh, pointed out that the people who actually have had the near-death experience, uh, how their lives change after the events. Um, and I just immediately saw uh, you know, the parallels between that and the UFO abduction phenomena. Um, so after that initial email, we, uh, we connected, uh, went back and forth and shared a bunch of uh, follow-up emails. Then we uh, exchanged Skype address and we set ourselves up to have a conversation. Um, this was just a sort of, you know, greet. I just wanted to check in. Actually, I had no intention at all of doing a formal interview. I just wanted to ask her some questions, uh, you know, mostly for my ongoing research about, you know, what she had learned. Uh, what happened was really surprising and quite delightful. The the conversation that we had, and it was recorded, uh, and it's what you're about to hear, was really great. Um I mean, we really dug deep, and, and there was a sort of uh, electricity uh, in the air as we were we were talking about these things. Uh, it does not have the feel of a formal interview. Uh, it certainly has the feel of a very engaging conversation, which I much prefer. 
uh, I did a little bit of editing before posting it here now. Uh, not much. There was a few things we talked about afterwards, and you can hear, we can hear us talking about it right at the end. You'll hear us discuss the fact that, wow, this would make a great uh, interview, you know, to be posted on, on my site. Um, the, the stuff that I did remove was just, there was some names of colleagues that she used and without, you know, asking their permission and the, and some of the subjects we were touching on were, you know, we weren't shy about really going into the fringe areas. Uh, so we, there's a little bit of removal of that actually. And both her and I swore a little bit too. So that gets snipped out. So we sound uh, very professional. And, and I have to say that when you listen to this, boy, there's a lot of experiences that uh, that Suzanne has had that overlap with, I mean, with the UFO experience, with psychic phenomena, with states of deep meditation, with uh, enlightenment experiences, as well as her own near-death experience. What I would encourage anyone who listens to this interview I, I would uh, I would point you to both the interviews that she did for Skeptico, as well as Mysterious Universe. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Those are both great, and I think they those should both be required listening. Now, now in this interview you're just about to hear, uh, we do talk about um, the UFO phenomena a lot, and in the two other interviews that I'm directing you to, uh, there is no reference at all to the UFO phenomena, but the, there is. Uh, a very profound, how would I say it, like a mood or a tone that matches the what the uh, uh, abductee will also report. Now, I am also going to chime in at the very end uh, as a summation and uh, and share a little bit more. This interview runs just a little bit shy of two hours. Uh, when when we start. Uh, it isn't. It doesn't start like a formal interview because it's not. It's much more of a conversation, as I said before. We started speaking, having no idea that this would eventually turn into the podcast you're listening to here. So um, we had been having a little bit of trouble talking on the telephone. We decided to move to Skype, and that's when I decided to record it. The uh, telephone connection was shaky, so um, so that the the initial conversation just starts with us talking about the audio quality and then we roll right into some really heavy subjects now uh, let me be really clear here i had an amazing time uh, talking with suzanne uh, i hope it comes through the the intensity and how much i enjoyed it i hope that comes through and, and as the listener i uh i really hope you get something out of this there's a lot here please enjoy here we are. Oh, you sound so wonderful. This is a much, much better audio quality. Yeah, yeah, it is. Much yeah. better. You sound great. Okay. Yeah. So have you been doing a lot of audio interviews with your research? I've done two so far. The Mysterious – oh, three actually. Mysterious Universe and um, Skeptico and that one for Angela after we'd been out to Stephenville. Oh, okay. Oh, you went to Stephenville yourself. Yeah, because uh, – yeah, we did. We had a um, – we we sent actually a research team out there after the sightings, and then and then on Memorial Day a couple of years ago, a bunch of us who'd been following it or had been out there, um, another uh, another guy from the University of Maryland who'd gotten interested in all this. So we went out. We had like a four day um, weekend, and we had so much fun because we had the guy there who'd um, who was like the farm supervisor for Erath County, who was involved in finding a lot of cattle mutilations. And, and and two of the witnesses, Ricky Sorrells, the farmer who was the guy who was on – well, he and Steve Allen, the pilot, they oh, were yeah. interviewed a, a, a lot on different 
TV shows. So we got, we met Steve, we met Ricky. Um, we met the guy who was the, um, he was the fire, like the fire chief and also the guy who was the farm inspector. And we stayed at a B&B out there near Stephenville for four days. And we had a ball. But we got to talk to everybody involved and see where the sightings were. And a couple times after that, I talked to Ricky on the phone. When, he w- when sightings were going over, the, the cra- he'd go, oh, the craft are going over now. And then, the, and then the F-16s or whatever they are that dropped the flares that kept coming by after and dropping the flares – would come and you'd hear the roar of the jets and his dogs barking and everything. It was a trip. So you were doing UFO research? Well, just a little. Do you know what I mean? Oh, we yeah. Were well, that's interesting because I didn't, I didn't get that. Because when you said you talked to Angela Joyner, I just assumed it was you know, just talking about your near-death experience research the same way she would interview like a ghost researcher or something yeah. like that. No, we were actually kind of looking at the overlap, you know, the overlaps in elements and after effects of NDEs and alien encounters slash UFO encounters experiences. Oh, so you're you've been addressing that that overlap. It just wasn't me that I was. So I, I felt so proud of myself that I like. Oh, I just figured out something. These these overlap, but you had already been researching well, this. Well, you know, by the time I mean, even when I was getting into my own research, I uh, you know I picked up the Ken Ring books and realized. You know, we're looking at two versions of an extraordinary human experience involving unknown others and beings of light and beams of light. And, um, you know, and he looked at he was looking at that. I don't think he looked at the I don't remember now. I've got that book somewhere. But in Omega Point, um, the second book, I don't know if he looked at the actual elements of the experiences that were common, he looked at the after effects, and you listed a bunch of them in your first email. Well, the, to the, me. The, what I listed was stuff that you had just—I mean, I was just yeah. listening to your interview on Mysterious Universe, yeah. and then just clicking them right off. You know, just like you know, like I was so I basically had my pen in my hand, and when yep. you were speaking, I was so I was just paraphrasing exactly what you had said, and I'm like, oh, yep, 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 all these things. These and are really. Two of us on the board of directors of Assist. You know, I founded that, co-founded that organization with Elaine Stout, because um, one of my mentors pointed out that that's what needed to happen. But um, a couple other members on the board, if we would have included alien encounters in our listing of the different kinds of STEs or spiritually transformative experiences, but other people on the board, I think, were worried about adding that. But but um, Others of us, you know, are fully cognizant of the fact that, you know, like Ricky Sorrells, my God, um, and even Angela to a certain extent, you know, these alien encounter experiences cause changes just like NDEs do. And that's that's before you even get to the elements that are in common of the experiences, light that can do strange things. But from my first um, First time I spoke at an IANS conference, the Near-Death Studies Association, someone else, I heard an experiencer speaking about her experience. And right away, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I saw there was this, like, if you make a Venn diagram, if you make, you know, a circle that's NDE elements and accounts and a circle that's alien encounter or UFO elements and account and, and after effects, I mean, then the Venn diagram, the place where they overlap, is huge. and uh, and I'd had an experience in 1968 that fit into that second category. 
you know, I could I could assess it on the Grayson NDE scale as an NDE, but if I gave it to UFO researchers, they would have said, oh, no, that was some kind of alien encounter. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. If you give so, it to a shaman, then, they would say it was some sort of mystical encounter. Shamanic with, uh, awakening. With, yeah, exactly. And, and in the thick of all this, I had a shamanic awakening, which is right before, right before I got to spend winter break in Mexico with Terrence McKenna. And and uh, do you know you know who that oh, is? Oh, very. Right? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that was a trip, and uh, a bunch of the usual suspects in in Palenque, but uh, and then so okay, sixty eight. I have this 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 strange dream state experience that had, you know, it, it, you could score it on the NDE scale as a paranormal NDE. If you if you Google Grayson NDE scale, you'll see that he breaks them into categories that weren't relevant to my research, but. Um, but then in 71, when I was in California, I had a, 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 a really long, drawn-out daylight UFO encounter, followed by a strange experience after that. Do you want to hear about that? Sure. Okay. We go, you, know, you know California, right? You know the San Francisco area? Oh, yeah. yeah I've lived in Cal- I lived there for briefly in the 80s, yeah. Okay. We're up on top of Mount Tamalpais, right? Mount Tam. Okay. That mountaintop, you know, just off 101, uh, you can get to it from Mill Valley or Fairfax, okay. California. And um, two friends of ours from the East Coast had just moved out there. So we'd gone up there just to watch the sunset the way people do in California and, uh, who live around Mount Tam. And we're up there, and it's, you know, before sunset, and there's a couple dozen people up there. Have you ever been up there? Never, but I, but I can visualize it, yeah. Okay, there's a ridge up top, and 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 San, from where I'm visualizing myself being, the bay, the cliff edge is on the left. You can see the Bay Bridge. On the right is Bolinas, you know, the rest of Point Reyes Peninsula going out to the west. And at that time, there was a parking lot on that side of the road. So we're walking, and one of the two guys, these were two sons of this New York judge, uh, O'Hare, um, Ken and Bill. And we we thought everybody called Bill the UFO nut. You know, because I didn't know him well. I just knew he was a UFO nut, right? So we're crossing the road, and over my right shoulder, and we're heading for the edge where we're going to sit and hang out, you know. And over my right shoulder is this bright, shining ball. And I'm assuming this is a helicopter that any minute, you know, that just the sun is shining on it somehow, that any minute we're going to be able to tell it's a helicopter. But meanwhile, it just looks like this glowing ball of light, right? So I say to Bill, well, there's something up your alley, you know, like you idiot. And uh, and then as it as we cross the road and it's coming across the road with us making no sound, it's a UFO. It's a flying saucer about the size of, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, bigger than a VW bus or something. You know what I mean? A fair size, but not but not a big craft. And here's the thing, Mike. We're up on top of this ledge and, and to our left is the bay. So we're actually we're very high up above the bay, but this craft is is flying like a low helicopter height in relation to us and goes and hangs off the edge of the cliff. So we're hardly even looking up. I mean, I doubt if my head was tilted up 30 degrees because it's it's just right out there. And you could see these three sort of portholes, except everything was one color. And one of the one of the odd things about it, besides it made no noise and it was just hanging there. You know, not not that much higher up than we were, um, is that it was all one color and, and it was like 
I knew I had never seen metal that looked like that before. It was sort of like the dull side of aluminum foil or something. Oh, I've heard it this did. so many times. Keep really? Going. Oh, God, yeah. This, really? this shows okay. up all the time. Yeah. So we're up there. We're watching it. We're like Independence Day, you know. Um, we're, you know, flashing the peace sign. Somebody's playing a guitar. I mean, there were at least two dozen people up there. So we're staring at it. And, and at this point, we see a prop jet coming up, which I assume took off from Oakland. Air Force prop jets coming up the coast. And you can see it. It was a really clear day, not a cloud in the sky. So here comes this prop jet coming up. And then and then at some point, I don't know where the other prop jet came from, but it came from like the northwest to us. Whereas the plane from Oakland, it's like we're looking south down the coast, sort of uh, the, the bay, sort of south down the bay from up at the top of the ridge. And this other plane comes, this other prop jet comes from the northwest. And now all three craft, you can see without turning your head. You know, they're approaching the craft, and you can see all three of them without turning your head. And the craft wavers for a minute, like uh, air over a radiator on a hot day, right? Sure. Car radiator. And disappears. Yep, yep. And there's a little cloud in the sky where it had been. Little tiny puffy cloud in the sky where it had been. Not again, not another cloud in the sky. So these two and th- so it must I mean we must have been up there looking at it for like ten minutes. So these two jets circle around, circle around, circle around for a good length of time and go back to where they were. So we go home and we're pretty excited. We're living in a hippie commune here, right? And we go back home and we're all excited. We're like, We saw a UFO up on top of Mount Tam. They're like, everybody's sitting there. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but this was in everybody's macrobiotic days. Everybody's uh, yeah, with yeah. a bowl of brown rice and vegetables. And everybody's like, oh, we have a little round one up there on Mount Tam. Um, well, yeah, we've all seen those. Now, if you see, you know, you see one of the mile-long cigar-shaped ones up on Mount Tam, Mount Shasta, let us know. So I figure, I just think, oh, everybody's, you know, everybody's um, had these experiences. And um, so then during my dissertation – I had I had forgotten about I mean I wasn't I had forgotten about the experience in '68 not forgotten about it but I'd forgotten that I'd ever made a record of it and I and I the UFO sighting wasn't even in my mind but now it's like '95 '96 this is right before I joined Open Minds Forum and met these other people that I went out to Texas with oh no I left a piece out I left a piece out within a week of that sighting in California my boyfriend and I broke up. Now, I have to tell you, Mike, I'm not a camper. I know nothing about camping. I've been camping like twice in my life, each time, you know, disastrous. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm like, I don't know about camping. Okay, I'm I'm a professional camper, just so you know. Okay, oh, that's right. That's right. You did the book on lightweight gear. Yeah. So for some odd reason that I can't explain to this day, I've never done anything like this before, I decide I'm going to go up to Mount Tam and spend the night. Now, I have to tell you this. If you had said to me when I said that to whoever I was living with at the time, these were hippie days, so I was crashing around people. Um, if you had been there and said to me, oh, you're going to go up there and what, you're going to take your little sleeping bag up there on the top of Mount Tam right where you saw the flying saucer? I would have said, oh, Jesus Christ, no, I don't think so. So the whole fact that I did it was weird, okay? It was weird that I did this. I hitchhike up to the reservoir up halfway up Mount Tam. I climb up this waterfall. I mean, this is insane that I did this. I climb up a lot. I'm, I'm carrying like a, you know, a couple packs of cigarettes and a couple bottles of fruit juice, you know, in a paper bag. I mean, not a camper. I hike up this waterfall that goes up to the top of the ridge. I don't even know how I knew about it. I mean, this is so odd 
to me that I did this. And the more I, I won't, the more I talk about it, the more I ha- there's so many questions I can't answer. Like I'm not even sure I knew about that path, but I took it. And I go up to the top of the thing, and now I'm up in the field, which is literally where I fir- where, where the park cars park during the day on along the edge of the road. And I'm up at this field, and again, the, I am not even connecting the fact that I'm up there with this sighting. I'm not connecting it for a nanosecond. So I have my sleeping bag, and I'm looking for some wood, you know, to start a fire or something. And then I'm, and then it's starting to get dark, and I'm like, "What am I doing up here?" And did you I'm have start- a sleeping bag? I did. I had a sleeping bag, yeah. but I'm like, I am suddenly wondering: a) what I'm doing up there by myself, and b) I'm getting scared because night's coming. Now, now from the road walks this hippie couple. Didn't see a car stop, and and I was maybe, let's see, fifty six, sixty six. In my mid twenties, somewhere fifty six, sixty six, like twenty five, twenty six. And, and what? Couple, and what year was this again? Like seventy one. Okay, seventy one. Okay. Right. So here comes this couple, and they look like they're a couple years younger than me, and they've got a blanket folded. They don't even have a sleeping bag, right? No excuse given for what they're doing there. But but I start feeling not so scared because I feel like I'm the oldest person. So you know, we light a fire, we chat for a while, we lie down and go to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I'm woken up by, and there's like small animals behind me. I can feel them behind me through the sleeping bag, and I go back to sleep. Okay, I, okay, because I mean, I, I've, okay, now just let me interrupt because I've slept outside a lot, you know, and and it's not uncommon to have a mouse crawl across you, right? So that not a mouse. No, these were. I would say I'm imagining. <laughs> I can't believe this. I wake up and it's as if there's a bunch of uh, big groundhogs or, you know, there's, I can feel animals behind me at my back. This I can, is so interesting. Okay. And I go back to sleep. Yep. I mean. Uh, yeah, I no, so what, what I guess what I was saying is if, if, you know, from my personal experience from everyone, if you lay out and sleep outside and a mouse crawls across you, you wake up. With your heart pounding, you sit up, you frantically push the mouse away. Uh, you, you know, it takes a little bit. You're like, whoo, that was just a mouse, you know. And then, but that's like, it's like, you know, I, I, it, it totally rocks your world for, you know, that little microsecond. I, I mean, you wake I mean, up in a jolt. you wouldn't go back to sleep for an hour probably after that yeah. happened. Oh, no, I'm feeling animals pressing up against my back. Not little mouse going over my neck. Animals. And I go back to sleep. And when I wake up, the couple's gone again. And does it strike me as a bit weird? Oh, they're gone. The couple's gone. Oh, God. Okay. I mean, and the whole fact of them being there with a the blanket and that the whole thing was so damn weird. And I hike back down the waterfall and go back about my business. And it wasn't until now I'm in the middle of my research. It's the mid nineties. I'm I've heard this first woman at an IANS conference describe her near-death experience during which she's taken by these beings that look like sort of neon blue sort of gaseous columns to her home galaxy or something. So all this stuff is swirling around in my head that there's this clearly some kind of overlap between near-death experiences and alien encounters. And I'm sitting sitting in my office, I'm meditating. And, you know, usually if you're meditating and thoughts come in, you go thinking, thinking, and you go back to meditating. Well, this thought comes into my mind to um, go look in this box of stuff that I – box of college papers, you know. And, and again, this is decades, an old decades box. I haven't opened it since college. And the next thing I know, I'm sticking my hand in the box. I'm pulling out this 
stapled sheets of paper, which was that experience I had in 68 that I haven't told you about yet. That was that one that fit into the two things, the two, um, you know, that fits both into alien. And, you know, if you gave it to alien encounter researchers and you gave it to near death researchers, they'd both say, oh, yeah, this was one of ours, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I'd forgotten ever making this mimeograph copy of the experience in 68, which was so cool because it included. Basically, I was in 9-11, which I didn't realize till till September 11, 2001 or whenever it was. But this is still the mid-90s. But I pick up this thing, and I realize I made a mimeograph copy of that thing in 68. And that brings to mind the, the UFO sighting and everything. So at this point, I'm like, whoa, there is really a connection between these experiences. I don't know what it is, but I heard that woman speak. I knew that people's in i was starting to see in near-death experience accounts lots of these elements that you would otherwise find in an alien encounter account you know and um you know i'd read communion and all that sort of stuff by then and i um, never quite knew why i was interested in it again always thought these people were ufo nuts yet i was really interested in it and um and i i mentioned it to my dissertation advisor i had bruce grayson on my committee which is great you know he's like the dean of near death studies but this was my uh the cultural anthropologist who was my dissertation chair i i mentioned something about this overlap and i remember he turned you know in the ufo sighting i'd had no and he, i remember we were walking up the stairs in the building where my department is and he turned around and said don't tell anybody about that so i didn't mention any of this to anybody until my dissertation um, got approved. I still had a bunch of revisions to do that took months. But in May of 2007, that's when I joined Open Minds Forum. I don't know if you know about that. Now, Open Minds Forum, is that turned since into Open Minds TV and it got... No, they, they sort of started up when Open Minds was starting to come apart. And, and, and most of the admins, all the admins except one, are now run the Outpost Forum, which has a page on Facebook. Okay, but but that's when I sort of stopped being at Open Minds. But that's when I met all these people from Stephenville, and we went out to Stephenville, and I got just much more interested in all this stuff, you know, realizing. And then I ran into that Elizabeth Satoris article that I sent you, that presentation she made on when cosmic cultures meet or whatever mm-hmm. that I sent you, and um. And I and I and by this time, you know, I'm starting to teach Native American cultures. I'd worked with. The, different native american elders and and i and i realized reading that article it kind of clicked and i went that's it our culture recognizes the fewest dimensions of any culture ever studied by anthropologists or um evolution biologists evolutionary biologists and and indigenous cultures around the world know about um you know these other dimensions where you're going to find unknown others and beings of light and sure, I mean we have heaven that we that we treat totally mytholo- you know mythologized, and so yeah, but but we don't go, you know, heaven and hell is as, is as far as we go, as far as other realms. Yeah, and, and so people who people who don't you know aren't deists or theists think there can't be an afterlife because we've so conflated these ideas of God with these ideas of of survival, but um. Shoot, what else was I going to tell you? Oh, I reported that. Oh, finally, I reported that sighting to MUFON because I called MUFON because I'm like, do they know anything? Do you oh, know what well, I mean? Yeah, I, 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 I got some strong opinions. I got some strong opinions on MUFON, but keep going. Uh, me too. Me too. I mean, I, I ran into it. We encountered a lot of that by knowing the people in Texas and you know with MUFON during this time. But I didn't know that at the time. So this was before I'd gotten into open minds. This was still in the mid '90s. So I call MUFON. 
and because um, I'm trying to find out if they know anything. Because I'm, I'm seeing in near-death studies, they're not talking about any of this stuff. So I get this ridiculous researcher. I can't remember her name right now, but if I mentioned it, she, she's an idiot. I mean, because right away I'm seeing that we're looking at dimensions that I'm, I'm not sure – beings are actually flying around in tin cans. I'm not sure if what I saw in 1971 is what that craft, which looked like a craft to me, is what it looked like to its occupants or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I mean, oh, yeah. I'm not sure yeah. it's not the government. I'm not sure what it is. You know, I just know that it had propulsion we don't understand and abilities to do stuff we don't understand. And maybe it was a holographic projection. I don't know what the hell it was. But I know my going up there and spending the night within a week of that and having that weird experience, I can't believe wasn't connected to it. But um, so I called MUFON in the mid-90s, and I ended up making a report because the woman I talked to, though I thought she was an idiot, and was immediately debating me in terms of my interpretation of the experience. Because for her, it's nuts and bolts. It's metal objects. Although the one that in Texas, it did not act like anything anything material the way it acted and didn't disturb treetops and stuff like that. But I did do a report on it because she said, you know, the fact that it was daylight, multiple witnesses, and that you saw it arrive there and depart like that, that's unusual. And, you know, really appreciate you making a, you know, an anonymous report and everything. So I did that and I drew the picture and everything and I saved it. You know, I saved the report that I gave them and all and kept it with that account that I'd done of that weird experience I had in 68, which was sort of a, you know, I mean, I was shown previous lives. I was like, um, um, I was, I was like, I was in nine 11. It was the weirdest experience. It lasted for hours and I kept waking up. There were like episodes and I'd wake up terrified and bathed in sweat and bam, be right back to sleep. But what are the parts of the experience had to do with these like vibration, weird, 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 vibrations in my ovaries and i and for and that's Bob. and that was in 1968 yeah and that freaked me out as i learned more about these things do you know what i mean oh god yeah there's as lots I of learned, ovary stuff that shows know, up in the research and yeah. these weird vibrational states that wouldn't have shown up in 1968 in any of the literature or very fleeting if at all so yeah and, I, and a few, other times through the years i've woken up with that and, and, and in the and in the in the state that i was in i mean i you know, I don't know what to call it, but vivid dream state, this being who was tall, thin, and very pale, um, <laughs> ooh, um, like at one point reached up, reached, uh, reached over and squeezed me like around the waist with his thumbs were in my ovaries, like, and that's what caused that vibration. And I mean, it was really painful and it took a really long time when I woke up for it to go away. And, um, and, and a couple other times I had that. And, and at one point I had to have an ovarian cyst removed, which I don't know has anything to do with any of that. But it's certainly all stuck in my mind. This is the this is what I'm running into is that there in, it's not a tidy, you know, that MUFON, no. they want it to be a tidy metal right. spaceship that they can they can get a radar reading and then they can get a, uh, you know, pilot sites, sightings and things like that. But I know my experience my own personal experience as well as like the people I, I mean i feel like i'm i'm migrating and attracting these kind of stories rather or migrating towards and attracting these things towards myself too uh these kind of stories that are much more oh you know there's an element to it that is so metaphysical and, and mystical and i mean it you know it overlaps with all this stuff i mean the near death stuff the 
people doing heavy doses of psychedelics, people doing, you know, yes. uh, deep meditation. Um, yeah, so everything you've said. Now, the interesting thing to me is that, so 68, you have this. Now, what would you call that, that experience? Do you have a name for it? or? Well, well yeah, I called it, um, what did I call it in that thing that I wrote about it? I mean, I'm just going to say a mystical experience or an awakening oh, experience. Oh, yeah, no, I don't know. It, paranormal, I guess. Definitely, I'd put it in a paranormal, ca- you know. I mean, because for one thing, I saw, I mean, my then husband on 9-11 was just, well, we were splitting up then. So he was horrified because he remembered that. He knew about that because I talked about that experience a lot. And he was thinking that somehow the amount of distress that he caused in my life had helped contribute to 9-11. How weird is that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He knew I'd seen it in advance. And I mean, nobody knew that till then. But as of 9-11, anybody I had told about that experience to remembered it. Remember, you know, it was like, whoa, (laughs) whoa. So just really really strange and now just in the realm of um are they material or not D- you've read that jim sparks right yeah i have strong opinions i've met jim sparks briefly i, I have some strong opinions on him uh, but anyway keep going well something that rang true for me in in what what i heard and say and read in his book was the idea that you could be taken in in not necessarily your full material form so that somebody could come back and you'd still be in bed. Oh, yeah. And yet you'd be able to see footprints literally going through the glass door, you know, with with grass clippings on the feet. Do you know what I mean? Yep, yep. Well, I wonder about that because in the Texas sightings, like the the thing that Ricky Sorrell saw and Steve Allen was like, like a half a mile wide, a mile long, like a big rectangular craft. And um, I know uh, um, Linda Moulton Howe had, you know, had it drawn from Ricky's description and maybe even on the Discovery or the History Channel, you know, you, you could see images of what he saw. So this was an enormous, enormous craft. And then Ricky talked about when it would take off, it would tilt like 45 degrees or something and just take off up, but not even disturb the treetops. So it wasn't behaving like a material object at the same, by the same token, the night of the most of the, there was a lot of sightings one night and we got, as I understand it, we put in for a freedom of information act. Somebody connected with researching this. I don't know if it was Steve Allen or who physically did this FOIA you know, request, apparently, and we only had to pay $40 for it. We got back the compiled radar in the area so that it was trying, you know, it was triangulated. Everybody was reporting the same thing in a circle around that craft, which meant that did show up on radar. So it's like, it's as if at least some of these craft can operate in a way that sometimes seems material and sometimes doesn't. Yep. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the challenge. That's the mystery, you know, like when is it, you know, when is it physical? When is it uh, an apparition? When is it a hologram? When is it like projected into the mind of the, the witness? Yeah, all these things blur together. Yeah, this is, this is the challenge to, to make sense of it. And, um, you know, I'm less concerned with the, like, I, like I've been to 
places where you know the the researcher goes out and measures the burn mark in the backyard when all that's important it doesn't interest me but to yeah, do yeah and we did some of that you know we got deer cam deer cam images where you see this beam of light coming you know from people in the area oh, that yeah. had images on deer cam that night and it's the weirdest thing when the deer cam image comes down and it doesn't it, maybe it's hitting ground mist or something but it's the weirdest thing. It doesn't look like it. This looks like it stops before the ground and stuff like that. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing process uh, about this deer cam imagery. Uh, Suzanne made an effort uh, after we recorded this conversation, uh, and obviously before I went through the editing process, uh, she checked in with a colleague and uh, talked about this deer cam stuff and. Uh, they have concluded that uh, it's probably nothing paranormal at all, and it may just be some some lens disturbance from the moonlight. So uh, I just wanted to make sure to include that here because uh, there's some question of the validity of, of whether that's associated with the event at all or the probability is that it is, is just a refraction from the moonlight. Okay, back to the interview. But it's the weirdest thing. It doesn't look like it. This looks like it stops before the ground and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, like you, I'm and I trained the researchers who went out on that trip. That was before when I went to Stephenville and how to do ethnography, you know, how to do how do, how you interview people without leading them at all. You know, which mm-hmm. is the, which is the method that I use during um, my research. So, I mean, I think all that stuff is really, really interesting. But like you, I mean, like the crop circle stuff, you know, going out and finding out that the nodes are bent, they're not crushed. And, you know, all that stuff is really important. But, yeah, it's it's sort of less my interest, too, than what the hell is. I mean, my real interest is in consciousness and culture and what the hell is going on here. Like, I'm not a deist or a theist. You know, I mean, I. I uh, know there's more, and I know there are more advanced beings. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I have not seen anything that I would identify as God, and I don't think any of my informants have either. You know, be, pe- Now, my mom had a very profound near-death experience, and in many ways, that's what started me on this PhD. I didn't know until I was about – I wasn't convinced until I was two years into research that the experience I had at 36 months was a near-death experience because there was no tunnel and the model is screwed up. I and mean, that's a whole other story I dealt with in my dissertation. Um, but in her near-death experience, that being of light was Jesus, you know, because that was her orientation. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it shows up as, you know, Allah or Buddha, or, you know, depending on who you, you know, are. A yeah. lot of times, it, you know, the fact that you have a certain religion does not mean necessarily that you'll – I mean, if you never heard of Jesus, you're not going to call the being of light Jesus. Absolutely, yeah. If you never heard of Wakantanka, you're not going to call the being of light Wakantanka. But, but, I mean, I know this Christian minister who wrote a book in Near Death Studies, and like she said, I don't know the being of light was. I was just glad it was there. And one of my informants was interesting how he framed it, and I – to me, this makes a lot more sense. The being of light, he said, appeared to me as like St. Peter at the gate with this big book. And he said, but I know that that's how what I was presented with because that was my background. Yep. And I thought that was very, you know, very sophisticated. But that was the closest any of my informants ever got to, you know, and, and I and I, you know, so I don't know. I mean, I just know there's advanced beings here and there's advanced technologies that we don't know anything about. And that our worldview is keeping us from learning a lot because we keep we keep being limited to these three dimensions plus time and, you know, not knowing how to go after data any other way or make make sense of it any other way. 
and then also compiled uh, compounded onto that is the stigma i mean the fact that your your colleague you know basically said uh, don't talk about this you know is you know like how can you even go down the avenues of research if it's if you have to do it you know in secret or whispering you know right yeah um i met these guys um online al alexander went and raymond duval <clears throat> they're they're like really top international security experts and they were, and I, I posted, I'm, I'm going to try to find the link to this so I can post it here on Facebook on the outpost forum has um, a page, the outpost forum. Okay. And I posted a link to this article there. Let me see if I can just pull it up quick. Um, but they, it's called uh, sovereignty and the UFO. And they got excoriated by their colleagues who bragged about not even reading that article. I mean, it got published in Political Theory Journal and was absolutely straight up. Um, okay, let me see how far down on Yapos Worm it is. Absolutely straight up, you know, credible article by credible researchers pointing out that the problem is not scientific. There's plenty of scientists interested in this business. Um, shoot. It's, you have to, it's an article on the Outpost Forum page by Lillian Waters, who's one of the people that I met through the Outpost Forum. She's like a, one of the MUFON people in New York. Not Lil, Yeah, Lily, uh, UFO, yeah, I've actually emailed her. This is funny. I've never knew her last name. Yeah, Lil. Um, uh, so let's see now. Where are we? All right. This is the link to the Outpost Forum. I'm just posting it here on our, on our Skype chat. And then you have to scroll down to the article why many scientists are afraid to talk about ufos and then my comments underneath um where i said yes there's no lack of interest in this topic among scientists the resistance is political not scientific as international security experts alexander Wint and raymond duval pointed out in their article in political theory journal sovereignty and the ufo this first link is to a mershon center overview of their article the second link is to the article abstract on the Political Theory Journal site with a link to the full article PDF. But, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, they're saying the same thing, that, you know, the, the taboo is political. And it's because nation states hold sovereignty in our era. They have the right to do violence and stuff like that. And we're not supposed to. But um, And they don't want any other sovereign entities floating around out there. So you can't get funding to do any of this research that's why there's no research yep yeah i mean it's it's and to me i'm like i'm at the point now where i'm like i'm not interested in convincing anyone all i'm interested in is doing my own research and being as honest as i can be um you know in this stuff so well if you want to do a regular interview i'm up for it okay well here i'm let's not let's not worry about that right now like no no i mean you know i'm just reaching that point because you know at some point (laughs) when i had the shamanic awakening experience and that would have um, been in the that's in the mid nineties. I, I I got I got. It was like I got a lesson. The art of making impossible acts of power, but only when required. And it, it really had to do with the construction, enforcement, the construction, maintenance, and enforcement of reality borders, and who the reality border gatekeepers get to be. It was like I got this huge data download of why Western science set itself up the way it did because it was doing it. Because up till then, the church was the reality border boss, and they said the earth was flat. 
And then here comes science in the form of celestial navigation, right? Yeah. Who, who you know, proves conclusively that the Earth is round by, you know, uh, what's his name? Screws. Um, for chronic, uh, yeah, for, 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 uh, selling, uh, sailing around it. Yeah. Um, he didn't make it back. But um, and, and, and then all of a sudden it was always round. Like whenever our reality borders change, what we find that we and I don't know if you've read Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. No. But it's it's really worth reading because worldviews change, and and what's holding keeping our worldview back from changing, I think, is the corporate interests. You know, it's corporate and political interests. It's not scientific at all. But um, and 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 then I was shown how. So the church used to be the reality border gatekeepers. They were the bosses. Now Western science is the reality border bosses. And and the way the reality borders are um, enforced is institutional mental health, the criminal justice system, and the military. So if you go talking too much about UFOs and aliens, the military is going to come after you and shut you up. Um, If you see something because you tripped, well, the criminal justice system is going to have your urine sample and, you know, put you in jail. If you just saw it and you weren't tripping and they don't have anything in your urine, they're just going to lock it up. Do you know what I mean? It was like I got this whole download about, whoa, in terms of who is enforcing our reality borders. And I was even shown them from the outside. I was shown how there's not supposed to be anything out there. Material reality is infinite and mostly empty, and there's nothing beyond it. And then I sort of was shown this image of it being inside a big ball, and then it's completely fortified you know, from the inside. And yet people get outside of it all the time. But coming back in, it was like when I was trying to write my dissertation, I saw how our cognitive linguistic system like allow you know gives you certain knowledge containers. And if you want to bring knowledge in, you know, from outside the border, and why ethnography is sort of a shamanic domain in Western culture, because I could bring all this stuff back in from near-death experiencers, you know, this alien knowledge of other worlds, but you know, I always had to put quotes around it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. So by the time I was trying to write that sucker, it was like the knowledge containers. I mean, imagine when you go to the bank, you know, and you pull into the outside teller and those are those little pneumatic things. Yeah, the little tube. Well, it's like that. You're at the reality board and you're trying to stuff your knowledge into these containers. But if, if your knowledge doesn't fit in those containers, you don't get it back in. It was like I was shown all this in this download. It was incredible. And um, and and how I could bring stuff back in if it was in quotes. Do you know what I mean? Uh huh. Um, and that's and that was what I was doing in a way. Uh, it was sort of writing about my own experiences because I didn't really truly believe, trust, understand. And I would I would go around the block and just add all these kind of uh, you know I would just these interject these things into my writing. These kind of well maybe perhaps on some level it might be if looked at a certain direction, could be conceived of within these framework. And I, I would never just say it out loud or state it because I was so constrained by those reality tunnels. Yeah, that's, you know, that, 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 uh, and I, I, I call was, them the cognitive linguistic knowledge containers. Yeah. You know, and if they don't fit, you don't get to bring it in. Yeah. And that all changed, uh, in March of this year where I was just like, I just basically had an event that just was like, screw it. You know, it's all, it's obvious now. So, but anyway, keep going. Okay. I was just going to say the same thing during that shamanic awakening. Um, I was sort of 
given that too, that like, you know what, you've got, you've got all the, uh, the credibility we have time to give you. Uh-huh. So you better, you better run with it. <laughs> you know, you better run with it. So, okay. I just got yeah, this, this. So I'm sort of feeling the same way, you know, like now that I've talked to you and I see you're a normal human being, you know, I, I try to be, okay, we can do the interview. The, <laughs> um, have you, uh, Oh, I was just going to say something. It completely dropped out of my mind here. Oh, there's a researcher named um, Jeff Kripal. He was totally into comic books as a little kid, and he's framed everything in relationship to comic books and pulp fiction and uh, sort of exploitative science fiction, uh, pop culture, and you know, corny science fiction movies and such. Uh-huh. Uh, he wrote a book called Mutants and Mystics. He's a he's the ch- I think he's the chair of theology at um rice university in texas but he and he's got a he frames all this stuff beautifully he never you know he's he just he'll talk about it in this kind of etheric ways and then he had a close-up ufo sighting when he was five years old and he had a kind of mystical satori experience when he was in India researching the deity Kali, and I think he was doing that, uh, and then he. She's my fave. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I've lived in ashrams and everything. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Why well, you did the hell hippie thing? Yeah. Oh, San Francisco totally. and the whole thing. That's yeah. why I was in California. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, and I read that article that you just sent me, the the Eric Davis article. So. Um, and then the two links are to the Alex went to the Mershon Center's overview of the Alex or the Went and Duval article. And then a link to the article itself or to the abstract where you can download the PDF. The Mershon Center overview is good. It just sort of walks you through it. Yeah. So anyway, but it's, it's you know, so here's a guy who's in, in the academic role. He's got tenure, so now he can say whatever he wants. He's framing it in this like uh, as if uh, these popular – and he does a great job. He's super interesting as far as how these elements that show up within the UFO abduction lore – and uh, how they show up in like almost predictive, uh, like the, like the, the power of creativity and the, the intention of the artist can bring this stuff forward. So anyway, he does a beautiful job of it, but he, um, you know, he does the same thing. He's very, very cautious to like, you know, say what may or may not have happened in his youth. And, and, uh, now, um, this is that you read the essay on the owl thing that I wrote. Yes. Yeah. So that was kind of, this is so f- interesting because there's this, there's and you were also saying that that the people who have the near death experience there's like a population of folks that would qualify given you know the checklist that would uh define what an nde is that that they are walking around not knowing that they actually had that experience that somehow yes. gets framed in a different way or they dismiss it or they deny it or they or it just doesn't have you know it doesn't match the pop culture version and the same exact thing is going on with the ufo abductees and that was what i was trying to make a point of in that thing yes. where these, these maybe people you know the guy who says well i saw this ufo and it happened with this owl and we were in this canyon in arizona and the owl sat on the branch and then the owl flew away and the next thing we know there's a giant triangular craft zooming above us and and then he goes on to tell all these stories that that you know like he basically says i was a little boy and when i was a little boy like i had this experience i was in a darkened room and time stopped and i slipped out of reality and then when i snapped back in i had a bloody nose now for someone that may sound like nothing at all 
to someone who's not immersed in this kind of research like I am, but that is like freaking textbook uh, UFO abduction stuff, you know, the, the slipping the time slip, the jolting back into reality, and then the bloody nose. It's all, you know, you know that to me just screams, you know, the, the little red light is flashing, you know, for me, and then I'm like, oh, this guy's an abductee, but it's not my job to like say, you know, hey, dude, uh, you know, you know. were abducted by aliens, so it's not, so, so I hint at it, and I, and, and I've hinted at it to him, I said, you know, I basically said, whoa, you know, just so you know, and, he, and it's, he's aware of it, but he's not going there, and the reason I'm so content and sympathetic towards these folks, that would have been me just a few years ago, um, and I've yeah. been aggressively researching my own set of weirdness and i've just been forced to conclude that i have had that and i hate the term ufo abduction i wish there was another term but i've had the ufo abduction phenomena in my life it has intersected with my reality somehow overlapped with it intersected with it, intertwined i you know i'm you know these those words fit better for me than you know like i am a ufo abductee because i don't really i don't actually know what that means yeah, I don't actually know what that means. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's because the, the the pop culture has been polluted with these late night um, oh late night audio excuse me these late night cable TV uh, documentaries you know with the spooky blue lights and the people are on the table and it's just horrible and and you know they you know they get taken from their car or they get taken from their bed and and that's the that is that would define UFO abduction. But what I'm seeing is so much richer, so much more multi-layered, so much more ethereal. And, and uh, yeah. And then, Oh, here's what I was going to say earlier. Like, like the problem I have with MUFON, you know, MUFON has like a MUFON investigators, you know, checklist. It's like this little form you fill out, you know, the MUFON form, you know, they just go down the list, you know, like how far with it, if he held a, if he held a, you know, a quarter at arm's length, would it be, you know, if you held something at arm's length, would it, would a nickel, a penny, a dime, or a quarter cover it up? You know, so they have all this criteria uh, that they ask, but they don't ask. And the questions that I care about are like, how did your sense of religion change? How has your spirituality been affected? Have you had any psychic experiences? Has your definition of reality been altered? You know, those are the questions I want to ask. Have you had any follow-up experiences? You know, uh, it's so normal for people to have, you know, poltergeist experiences in their house after UFO abduction type things get reported. Uh, so, so yeah, so these are the issues that, that I'm, you know, like I, I guess it's important to, you know, call the, you know, local airport and ask if they have any radar data, but, you know, I don't bother doing that because that's not where my, that's not where my soul is, is, you know, reaching towards. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thought about sending you that thing for this same idea that like that we were talking about before about not everybody is recognizing these experiences in a way that fits anybody's particular model. Yeah. I mean, I have a near death experience model. I found found people outside the near death studies because I realized, well, if I didn't know for four decades that mine was a near death experience and mom didn't care. I mean, there, there was I could there was no problem finding informants who had not ever approached near death studies because they didn't relate to it or didn't know they should relate to it or didn't want to relate to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, because people have their own interpretations of these experiences, which don't necessarily fit the researchers' interpretations, and we don't know what we're dealing with. 
yep. in any of these cases. And in my opinion is all you can do is, you know, collect the reports. Data. Yeah, collect the reports, look for any kind of commonalities, and then speculate, you know. Yeah. And yeah. beyond that, I think you're fooling yourself, you know. To try to come I to a conclusion is, is, is foolhardy. I have another um, just anecdote to tell you. Um, you know John Mack, right? Yep, I never met him, but I've I know him. And well, his, I had I know an appointment. I had an appointment with him because I made uh, in his second book, Passport to the Cosmos. Yep, which I just time, was reading yesterday. By the time he had, um, you know, started writing his second book, a number of indigenous, you know, he'd become aware of these indigenous elders who had reported these things, or who had been known to have talked about these things. So in the second half of that book, there were four chapters, one on each of four. Uh, his interviews with one of each of four of these indigenous elders. Well, it just turned out that I was studying with one of them at the time. Oh, which one? Ipupiera. Ipu means freshwater dolphin in okay. Quechua. He was, his uh, Western name is Dr. Bernardo, Bernardo Pazuto because um, his mom was an Iroi Wow Wow native, which means people from the stars. And his dad was a Portuguese anthropologist and he ended up, going and be in, in Brazil and becoming an anthropologist. And I met him here in Washington because he was here for about a year, I think, um, as a consultant to the, to the National Zoo on their rainforest exhibit. So he was teaching, you know, the, the, with the curanderos, well, that's not what they call them, but, you know, the, the, we call them shamans or something, how they do their healing. And he, you know, would, having everything sent up here, ayahuasca and everything, kind of stuff's in up here but anyway so he and john mack was stopping in washington to see ipu on his way back from london and so uh ipu had contacted him to make sure that i could be included in that meeting because you know um ipu thought it was really and i heard Ip i heard ipu's account in person i think before i even read the book i can't remember now but i mean he was crying when he told me about it okay this this was clearly a spiritually transformative experience for him but um then um, John Mack, you know, died before he flew back. Oh, God. So I was going to say, when you said he was coming back from London, I was like, I almost was like, oh, I see where this is going. Yeah, he yeah. didn't make it back. So, but we were supposed to meet because uh, Ip was like, you should talk to him about this, you know, this connection. So, and then he didn't make it back. Oh, I, um, yeah, that was actually one of my, I mean, whatever, his, his work, I find is so vital because he definitely juggles both, you know, the, the the I've I've actually met a, and worked not worked with you know befriended I guess uh, a handful of folks that have you know uh, worked with him Paul Bernstein no a fellow named uh, Will Boucher and then a woman named Jacqueline well Paul worked with him Paul was an associate of his at Harvard in this pro, you know in this work and he is our host at our conference this year. And was last year and very interesting guy. He's, you know, he's like you and me, I think. I don't think he's bought into, you know, any particular um, interpretation of what the hell this is. But we got to spend some time in San Mateo. And uh, so I'll be seeing him again in October. He's a very interesting guy, too. But just another colleague of Max during that era. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um... I did uh, so here. Let me just so I'm gonna I'm gonna send you. I'm not gonna. I got to pull it off the shelf and figure out which one it is. But an author named Raymond Fowler wrote a book in in the uh, sort of summation of the book. He's a series of books he wrote called The Andreasen Affair. 
or if you're familiar uh-huh. with these. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, so in one of the books, I think it's actually, uh, they started, there was Andreas in Affair 1, 2, and 3, and then they turned into the Watchers, and so there's like six books in the series, you know, researching this one case. But he does talk about the near-death experience and how it parallels the um, uh, UFO contact experience, and he's very much into the, you know, less the, you know, the, the, you know what how the person changes and more just actually you know the light the tunnel you know all this stuff so um i'll i'll find that and and get you some information on that and cool so that's very cool hi this is mike i am once again chiming in during the editing process the book in question is titled the watchers 2 it's authored by raymond fowler and um, the subtitle of the book is exploring ufos and the near-death experience and this book uh, was published in May 1996. Uh, and this book does an excellent job of making the parallels of the experience itself of the uh, near-death event as well as the UFO abduction event. Uh, I would consider this required reading. It is the fourth book in the uh, Betty Andreas and Luca series. Uh, there are five books in total. Okay, back to the interview. I'll I'll find that and and get you some information on that. And cool. I, so that's very cool. Yeah, that one's that one's and that was probably in the early '90s. That one came out. So uh, you know that may seem like it's only 20 years ago or something now, but that it does seem like sort of ancient history as far as like how much has been looked into. You know these things since then. You know the late '90s, the UFO abduction literature just exploded and. Um, now, one of the, so here's something that I talk about. I'm very open with in my blog. You know, this first person stuff is that I have had a lifetime of clinical depression, and uh, I'm only now, and I've sat with. Um, I'm only now sort of like articulating this in any kind of meaningful way. I'm 50, so, uh, but I, I had a in 1974. I would have been in junior high school. And I, depending on how you look at the dates there, it was around seventh grade. Um, and uh, that was the very first time I actually remembered being depressed. There was this emotional sense, and I remember just, I remember it so clearly. It was so confusing for me. I remember walking around my school being sort of like, I don't want to say scared, but just like I just couldn't talk to anyone. So I would just avoid people, avoid people. It's, now I see it as just classic clinical depression, how it, how it manifests in me anyway. Um, and then that was this, it was right at that same time. And I've only like put two and two together within less than a year, you know, months ago, I've sort of made this connection. Uh, that was, so right around that same time is when I had a very vivid nighttime sighting of a UFO. Uh, and then I also had a missing time event uh, with a friend and that friend, I don't remember seeing a UFO. I remember seeing an orange flash in the sky but the person i was with saw um he claims he saw a ufo with, with you know with lights and everything is the way he said it and as soon as he said that i was like you know like i'm backing off no way you know like he's lying uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. and now 38 years later or whatever it is um you know all this stuff is is you know i just i like my god that isn't very interesting connection my very first yeah. memory of being clinically depressed and these odd events that i had no framework for dismissed them out of hand uh you know so um uh so that's interesting for me and then uh john mack talks about it very eloquently and i kind of want to dig through and find some of his written literature as well as i know he's 
speaks about it on some um, uh, video interviews, and I just could transcribe because he says it very succinctly during these video interviews, um, where he basically says, you know, the people who have this experience show signs of dealing with trauma. They sh- and he just goes down the checklist exactly the way a psychiatrist would. You know, here's the symptoms right. of people dealing with trauma, you know. Uh, and I absolutely fit those that, that checklist. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sort of at the point now where... Uh, the trauma of enlightenment. Exactly. I wrote that down and quoted that. Yeah. And that was, that was like I'd never heard that term before. But When um, I was dissertating, there was another woman uh, doing trauma. Her her dissertation was on trauma, and we sort of mutually and and we were really interested in each other's research because we saw that connection that there's, you know, that's why NDE integration is a big deal. That's why we're training mental health people to to help people with integration issues from these experiences. Um, So if you encounter them, we we now have our first group of trained people. They're all on the West Coast, which is why we're doing the conference on the East Coast this year. But yeah, they're, it's very traumatic. I mean, you know, decades after I had my experience, when mom died, that triggered my integration process, which as it turned out from research published after I had started on my research but not finished it, is very common with early childhood experiencers. So when mom died, it was like I was plunged in. It was like I just had the NDE as far as the impact of it. All of a sudden, I had all these abilities and was having all these strange experiences and shamanic awakenings and stuff. But um, so we coined that term, you know, that clearly these experiences are traumatic. And, and, from, an, and from a cultural perspective, there was this one anthropologist who was one of my 50 informants, uh, Patrick Gallagher, who wrote the only – I've done the first published ethnographic research in near-death studies. But he wrote the first article. And he wrote it like it was he wrote it like it was field notes from the light, which is was the title of my dissertation. It was called um, Over Easy, I think it was called. But it's become a classic in the literature. But what he does is he talks about it in, in terms of a real place and the culture. If you've ever gone somewhere that's really different from the culture that you lived in, you know, like you, you leave New York City and go down and study with Ipu in the Brazilian rainforest, you know, and live with the Iroi Wow Wow for a couple of years. You have culture shock. And then when you come back to your world from this very strange alien culture, you have counter shock. And that's how the model – we need a model that shows the impact of these extraordinary human experiences in terms of culture shock and counter shock. That's how it looks to me as somebody whose research method is ethnography because it's, it's counter shock. It's culture shock and counter shock. When you come back here, like one of my informants was like five of my, the, I, I, I foregrounded the accounts of 10 people for my written dissertation. Five of them had been to mental health people, you know, for something related to their NDE after the experience. None of them knew to identify the depression, the other stuff to their mental health practitioners that way. And none of the mental health practitioners thought to probe for whether they'd had one of these kinds of transforma- transformational experiences. But I remember this one woman said, yeah, I was like, I was looking at my family and saying to them, why are you talking to each other this way? Why are you speaking to each other so meanly? And, and, and they thought she was crazy. This is how we always talk to each other. What the hell's wrong with you? Do you know what I mean? So the return from one of these phenomenal otherworldly journeys is counter shock and all of a sudden your world looks different than when you left a friend of mine came home from two years in the peace corps in ghana in the 70s we got her at the airport she was bold rolled 
bent over laughing. I mean, crying and laughing. She couldn't stop. And when she could finally talk, she said, everyone's moving so fast. Yeah. Yeah. So she, I mean, just that amount. She was having a little tiny burst of PTSD. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A friend but, of mine yeah. came back from Africa um, after living there for a few years. I worked for a school that, that uh, had a branch in Africa, this camping school. I never worked there. but um, And he came back from Africa and sat down on the couch like, got you know back and everyone was hanging out and there was like hey let's pop a movie and they popped a movie in and it was just like some action adventure thing you know where things were exploding and he made it about you know a minute and he had basically like i got to get out of the room this is so freaking alien to me you know to just have something flash so fast in front of my eyes like that and it just seemed absolutely normal to you know all the americans in the room sitting on the couch staring vacantly at this sensory overload experience on the screen you know yeah well, look at my article that I sent you the file for, because um, I talk about that um, one researcher who I used her study for my comparison study to talk about my findings. She talked about the context shift, this ontological shift, which, again, to an ethnographer is the countershock. Yes, and that's a term that John Mack used is that, you know, the people who have these experiences suffer from what he called ontological shock, which is, yes. which is basically all of a sudden your definition of reality, my de- the way I, yeah, is, is like doesn't match. That's right. The, the, there's two issues. One, it doesn't match what it was the day before. And two, it doesn't match the, the, your brethren around you. I mean, that's I, I, right. I'm thinking and of. That's traumatic. Yeah, like I'm, uh, so I'm living in this little cabin. I live in this small little town. Um, and I can't, like, I feel so isolated and so separated now after having sort of gone down this path, you know, like after, you know, after being, I want to say forced down this path of, 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 of really looking at this stuff and, and, uh, you know, the things that I cared about at one point, you know, obviously I'm older now, but when I first moved to this part of the country, I was all, all I was concerned about. I just was, I was a classic ski bum. That's all I wanted to do was ski and hike in the mountains and go rock climbing and work for the school. And so now I'm, uh, I'm not the same person. And, and there's just, there's just been this gulf and it's actually very awkward. You know, um, that's why I wanted adult experiencers because my first memory, I think it might be my second memory, but it's my first color memory. My first vivid memory is of this, uh, uh, where I was during the near-death experience. And it was an enlightenment. I was in a state of enlightenment. And, and, then, and then the next thing, I'm here, I'm in the hospital, and I was very weirded out. And what went in the baby books, I was 36 and a half months old. Um, at the time at this NDE and uh, what went in the baby books, they didn't know about any of those things back then. And I certainly probably didn't know how to talk about it. I had a label for it though, but um, what went in the baby books is Susie's reading. Susie can read. We don't understand what happened. So I'm like 37, 38 months old and I'm reading. And I remember coming home from the hospital and staring at the comics, you know, in the Sunday paper and you know how Woodstock looks in the peanut comics. Sure. Well, like all the letter, all the writing looked like that and staring at it and just like willing it because I, I felt desperate, willing it to make sense. And I remember, you know, before I was five, I know, re- hearing about the millennium and, and that clicked. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here for after that. I'm here for after that. And, and, and then I forgot all about all that. You know, yep, I'm here for after that because there's this shift. And then 
in the mid 90s when all the stuff was happening, shamanic awakenings and all of a sudden I'm psychic and, you know, all this stuff's happening. Thinking back to that three year old and, and just like, God, thinking she knew more than she knew more than I know at this point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She heard millennium and went, yep, here for the shift after the millennium. And like and here I am with a damn Ph.D. I mean, let me tell you, I am going to die so in debt. <laughs> for what I did because you know we got divorced I sold I sold the house took my pension everything got invested in going back to school I thought I was just waiting out a bad economy by getting another you know credential I didn't know what the right had done to the economy none of us did most of us didn't you know until after 2008 and um but thank you know my only consolation is well if you can't take it with you apparently they can't come after you for it either yeah and you know and, uh, oh, thank I've... god for I mean I'm not I am a working, I was born into a, well, my dad died when I was 10. My dad died two weeks after my mother's profound near-death experience. And she said, I wasn't coming back. I mean, she realizes she's talking to her 10-year-old daughter. I mean, I didn't want to come back, but I heard you kids calling me. And every woman in my study who had young kids at the time of her NDE said something like that. I mean, I don't know if she could have managed to keep us together on her little GS3 government salary at the time. Um if she hadn't had that experience, do you know what I mean? So we grew up working class poor and, you know, and the only thing really that makes my life make sense to me, because I walked away from the good paying jobs, you know what I mean? Yeah. To do the stuff that I thought was important. And then, and then when I went back to school, that was just visceral, you know? Um, and, and I thought it was going to help me and the economy would get better and everything. But the only thing that really makes my life make sense at this point is that, yeah, I, I came here to be part of this shift, and by God, here I am. Well, I mean, I'm just coming from the, just whatever, we've talked whatever for an hour here or something. So, you know, you tell this experience of a near-death experience, you then have the, the uh, premonition of, of 9-11 and 68, you have the UFO sighting, you have the... I was in it. I experienced being in it in 68. And is that written in, anywhere? Is that, or yeah. is, that, is that part mm-hmm. of your um, field notes mm-hmm. from the light? No, no, no. I, it is. Uh, I, ha- I made a mimeograph of it because J.R.R. Salamanca, this well-known fiction writer, and I was taking a lot of creative writing classes. My first MA is in writing from the Johns Hopkins writing seminars. But um, he was teaching a class in creative writing at Maryland, and I wanted to take it. And that's why I wrote this thing up and mimeographed it. Yep. Yeah. You know, but I'm I'm in the basement of what I thought was the U.N. building. And I think it was. This was before the Twin Towers were built. And it, apparently it was the South Tower went second, right? I can't remember which one went first, but yeah. I think Because well, obviously in the scene that I was in, and as I said, I kept waking up between the installments, bathed in sweat, terrified, heart beating, and then bam, I'd be right back in the next installment of this experience. I'm in the what I assume was the ground floor, looking out the Hudson River of the United Nations building. I hadn't even been to New York at that time. Later I thought I was – there and I'm like, yep, that's where I was. Oh, the United Nations building. Yeah, I was in. I was in because the twin towers hadn't been built yet. I mean, okay. And I'm in the. I'm in it, and I'm looking out the Hudson River, and I'm in. And the radio's on, and 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 the radio announcers, and it's coming for the tower. And it was like it was already in the thick of whatever disaster was happening. I mean, that was clear in '68. The plane is heading for the tower, and this and and what I called an old Negro lady in a kerchief because I'd never seen a Muslim woman in a headscarf begins crying and I put my arms around her, which was not me in 1968. That's me now, you know, but it wasn't me in 1968. You know, I was still being cool and everything. I didn't go hugging strange crying ladies. 
And, um, and I said, no, it's not going to hit this building. It's not going to hit this building. And, um, and then the voice came back on the radio and said, it's not going to hit the tower. And it went, we watched the plane nosedive into the Hudson River. And that was the experience. And then on 9-11, I'm like, I was there. I was there. I just I didn't have a way to be in one of the Twin Towers or maybe the way your dreams or your experiences are very symbolic. You know, looking back on it now, I think, does that mean, you know, we're not destroying civil, you know, we're not going to end up destroying civilization here with all this. But um, I'll tell you what, on 9-11, I was like, I was there. I was watching the plane come, you know. Yeah, and I've and I've had a number. I've talked to a number of UFO abductees who had premonitions yep. or vivid dreams, and yes. I'm sure it's true of people who like maybe yes, know, it like is anyone like people who've taken a bunch of mushrooms probably had the same thing too. But yeah. and that's uh, another reason for assist. You know, it's to keep because here's my thought. Remember when there was no gay culture? There was, but it wasn't visible whether or not you were gay. And if you weren't gay, it certainly wasn't visible, right? Yeah. And now we have a visible gay culture, which teaches us more about human potential, right? This is a good thing. And I was talking to uh, um, Bruce Grayson at one point and said, you know, you, you know, hopefully you're going to, and he, and this pleased him, hopefully you're going to be remembered as the uh, Alfred Kinsey of, you know, near death experience. Because, you know, he got it out of the D, you know, Alfred Kinsey got being gay out of the DSM, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, as a result of the kind of work that we're all involved in now, people who have the kinds of experiences we're talking about won't be misdiagnosed, you know. But also, I wanted – we have a experiencers-only online forum through Assist now. I mean, one of the biggest goals for me is to make this like, okay, you know, you can be trans um, gender identified, right? Yeah. Be a tranny. Well, people like us are trannies too. We're trans dimension identified. So it's like I want the culture of people who've had these kinds of experiences and are living in a different world as a result of it to be culturally visible because that's how the worldview shifts. And so I and, and part of that that shamanic awakening of the art of making impossible acts of power but only when required, you know, which means being Magellan or whoever it was who sailed around the earth at the right moment, you know what I mean? Yep. Like there's millions of shamans in the, you know, we live in an officially no shaman zone, but there's millions of shamans in our culture. They're just not visible to themselves or others. So, you know, that's my real goal is to make this culture of people who've had these value shifts and priority shifts and understanding ontological shifts be visible to themselves and others so we can begin to affect culture. I could not agree with you more. That is so beautifully said. I um, one of the questions I ask every person I do these audio interviews—not this thing, but you know when I actually do a formal audio interview—you um, know, two questions I ask. One is, "What's up with all the owls?" And everyone's got a totally different answer. And then the other one is, "How would you define shaman?" And and I'm I always ask, "How would you define shaman?" Because I'm searching. I so did not want to be a shaman. Can I just tell you that? I used to pray, you know, because I was always, you know, I want to be a nun, then I want to be a Buddhist nun, I lived in ashrams. I was always into that stuff, right? But I used to pray. Hopefully we won't lose each other. I'm letting the cat out. Oh, no, he just wants his food. I'm carrying my laptop and everything around here. Um, I can remember literally praying, reading Carlos Castaneda, praying at the time. I wouldn't be – my path would not turn out to be shamanism because, no, I just want to be a nice spiritual person. I don't want to deal with the power shit, right? 
But guess what? You got to deal with the power shit. Yeah. And that's where I'm coming from now where it's like, you know, our, so the, so the answer I want to get from people is to have them say, you know, but so, so my, my, uh, my quandary is that we live in a society without shamans, right? So if we lived in, uh, uh, you know, like some tribal village in Brazil, you know, you just walk down to the edge of the path and there'd be the guy in the funny grass hut and he would, you know, you would go to him and he would be the shaman. Everyone would know it. Um, I think that's probably a little bit romanticized, but, you know, but we don't have yeah, that I, here. But, yeah, we don't have, but we do have it and people go to them and everything, but it's not officially recognized that that's the case. Or they're, it's or not they're visible. Exactly. Or that, that the people like I'm just now I'm going to use myself as an example and it's sloppy and it doesn't match up quite right. But you know, these experiences, and I'm going back to the John Mack book, uh, Passport to the Cosmos, as well as a yeah. conversation I had with this guy, David Weatherly, where what I have experienced would fall into the category of shamanic initiation. Correct. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. And, and, and in the thing that I told you about in 68, that was a shamanic death and rebirth. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, mean that, I hardly know anything. Until, of, it wasn't yeah. until the last phase of it that, that I saw the 9-11 thing. And that was when uh, it was after. Hold on one second. I got to put the cat food down here. Here, Mr. Reds. There you go, buddy. The, uh, I, I, part of what I saw was apparent. What looked like maybe it was supposed to be a past life. And and you know what? I don't even buy past and future lives because my understanding really is it's all going on at once. Exactly. It's the deck okay. of cards, and they're all just like this. Yeah. whole deck is there at the same time, and all we right. can do is focus on like, you know, as one card turns to the next. Yeah, so yeah. I get you. And we're you. in our little time. We're in this little timeline here, so you could have an experience that from this perspective would have been in the past. So I have one of those. I killed somebody, and then this the, the tall, skinny guy that I called the murderer when I wrote the account of it and mimeographed it. Then... It was like he put a gun in my hand, and it seemed to be in the 1930s, and I seemed to be a woman in a gang, one of, bad, one of them bad mafia gang things. And I was, she showed me out this woman in this other gang that I was supposed to kill, and there were 30s cars and 30s clothes and everything. And I'm like, oh, cool. I get to experience killing somebody, and I you know, killed her. And then that other gang killed me, which I, I – and it, the whole thing was like, oh, experience. Wow, I'm going to experience killing. I'm going to experience getting killed. This is interesting. And I know what it feels like to get shot to death. It's like heat, heat, heat. Like every bullet is like heat going in. And then that being that I called the murderer just looked over at me and just crushed my head like a, a leaf. It's a brown leaf. It was that easy. And, and in that experience, there was a tunnel sort of. Um, unlike the first one, I, I went through this down this dark thing. And then I was like, where we're supposed to, where this culture says you're supposed to go after death. And I think I called it the sea of rocks. I think I called the whole experience the sea of rocks. And I later wrote a poem called love in the sea of rocks. Um, cause I've had a fair amount of poetry published, but anyway, anyway, um, so I'm in this place where it's, I have to keep saying, and then this happened and then this happened, but that's really not what it's like in the experience, as you probably know. Just from reading. I've never had any. Yeah. I mean, from my near death experience, everything is going on at once, but to make it make sense in our world, we have to follow an Aristotelian narrative logic. There has to be a beginning and a middle and an end. And our whole Aristotelian narrative logic is, is of one lone male against a cruel and heartless universe, by the way, that's, that's the narrative logic we yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. Well, Luke Skywalker. Lone yeah. Ranger. Yep, Luke Skywalker. So, um, which is sick. 
you know, like John Mbidi, this Kenyan theologian says, you know, we are, therefore I am not, I think therefore I am, we are, therefore I am. But anyway, um, um, going off of my ADHD branches too much. Oh yeah. You and me both. Um, Oh, and, and, and so I'm supposed to be, so I have to say, and then this, and then this, but that's not really how it is in the experience. Okay. So now I'm in this place. That's just like a sea, but there's only rock. There's no water. And I know there's supposed to be nothing and I'm supposed to think I'm dead and there's nothing, but it wasn't working on me. You know, I, I think maybe because of the childhood near death experience. And I think that's why maybe a lot of children don't have tunnels. I think tunnels have to do with getting out through an electromagnetic field of of thought, but that's a whole other story. Um, and if you're a kid, you don't have to free yourself from it because you're not all the way in it, but that's just a hunch that I have anyway. So then I have to say, so then, although that's not how you experience it in the experience. So then I'm in front of this guy again, that I called the murderer. And I have to tell you, whenever I've had these quote dream state experiences that are unusual, the eyes of the beings are never like our eyes. And, And this is not the only one. This was just the most scary one. Um, so now I go find the guy again and I had a brief life review cause I saw my whole life go through his eyes, but that wasn't the point of the experience. But what I was telling him is, well, you know what? I got to go back, you know, obviously I need to get back there. And, um, and then I was in the, then I was in New York and the plane was coming to hit the tower, but I experienced what our culture says you experience after death being nothingness but it like it wasn't it wasn't working for me do you know what i mean i uh, knew i'm like wait a minute here wait a minute well that sounds like more like the like the kid playing the video game and you know whatever like just basically up oh, the game's over and he just pushes the reset button and starts over again yeah so i was in front of the guy again going you know what i am really gonna have to go back yeah you gotta push the reset button yeah. and, the, and the look on his eyes was like yeah yeah, well, of course you do. But so it was like I died and was reborn in that experience. I had a um, what would I mean, it's so interesting that I managed to, like, push this out of my psyche and figure out a way to deny it. I had what amounted to a classic UFO abduction experience without a UFO and without, like, memories of being on board the ship. But it seemed like all these other pieces where I'll tell this quick because it's long, long, long to tell it in any kind of meaningful way. I was with a friend of mine. She has also had a lot of experiences. Um, she, uh, she's one of those maybe people. And uh, we were dating at the time. She's from Germany. Her name is Natasha. We were in Southern Utah, excuse me, in Southern Utah. And, and we went to uh, Mesa Verde, which is in actually the Southwestern corner of Colorado. You know, so we're visiting this native American almost temple it's just gorgeous you know that that's the cliff dwellings you know the, the uh-huh. yeah 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 so so uh and we it's up on a butte so you drive back down to get back to cortez colorado and as we're driving down the brakes start acting up so we take the car to the little uh mechanic there in this cute little town and the guy comes out of the room and says listen i can't let you leave or you'll die and we're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? He's like, listen, legally I'm bound to keep this car here because it's unsafe for travel on the road. You know, there's an issue with this brake, and if it won't work at high speed, so so I gotta order a part, so I'm stuck for five days. So so weird premonition, like this this kind of this kind of like you are trapped here. You know, it was I just felt like, you know, in telling the story now, it just, you know, if it was mythology, it was basically be like the, you know, the gatekeeper at the you <laughs> know, at the castle would say, like, you cannot leave, you know. So uh, we rent a cheap car, we drive around, we had this great time. And, but before we did that, we had, we spent the night out. We had a, 
this experience in a tent just outside of Cortez, Colorado, just on the side of the road in this pretty forested area. And uh, both Natasha and I woke up screaming. Um, she said she saw something. I didn't know what she was talking about. It was We both experienced this realm of terror that is not – like simple vocabulary words won't do it. It, it felt like – this is the way I've been describing it. The fabric of reality was like folding in on itself and was, was like, we we were like our souls were on the precipice of being crushed by this, this magnificent, you know, boot of terror. Uh, You're giving me, well, I used to call them goosebumps. And then one of the native American elders that I've studied with said, you mean truth bumps? Oh, <laughs> uh, truth bumps, okay. <laughs> yeah, we, you've given me truth bumps. Oh, that's good. That's good. To, yeah, so we, and I'm literally like, I climbed on top of her just like someone had thrown a oh. hand grenade in the tent, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and now, and like, listen, I am no shrinking violet when it comes to spending nights in a tent. I've had dealt with bears and moose getting caught in the strings of a tent and stuff like that. So I know what it feels like to wake up in the middle of the night. And I mean, it's one thing to say like, Whoa, I just got startled and my heart's pounding, you know? And then, but this was something just off the charts. So anyway, like it, this goes on and on and then poof, we both go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I know I'm levitating, I'm floating. I've got the elevator up sensation. I, uh, I just magically transpose through the roof of the tent. Like if it was a, if it was a movie, uh, you know, like all you would do is just lap dissolve to this white realm. It wasn't like I went from one place to another. It just felt like there was a lap dissolve in reality and I was in a white realm. See, there you have it. You know, the world of light you're in. Yeah. Yeah. So this, and I, and as I was saying, as I was floating, I was saying, I have to remember this. 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 And the next thing I was saying is, am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table? And the next thing I remember is Natasha kind of grabbing me by the shoulder and with her German accent, you know, her cute German accent, sort of in her funny voice, she says, Mike, you're floating. And, and holy whoosh, shit. And then whoosh, I'm back in my body. Now, she doesn't remember saying, Mike, you're floating. I don't think that ever took place. But that's the way my memory plays out. Hello. Um, See, there's another one of those examples where your body didn't go anywhere. See, I think when you talk about out-of-body experiences, I think you're not going out of your body. We're always out of our body. We're just perceiving being locked in this spot right at the moment. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Like there's like, you know, wherever the definition between, you know, the spark of spirit that animates this meat sack is different than the, than the all powerful everlasting soul that, you know, that is animating, let's say that's the connection with this meat sack, but is somehow transcendent and well beyond that. Um, you're a nice meat sack body. <laughs> You're very nice. Oh, it's, at I mean, one it's, point it's, in the shamanic awakening, I'm like, I got how many beings have to cooperate for me to get to do this Suzanne dance. Oh, okay. That's and I was really thanking them. And, and I, I had this sensation like every cell in my body and little microbe that participates in this was standing up, giving me a, hand, a standing ovation, like for noticing. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Nancy Daniels, I think her name is. I've got it on my Kindle. Um, just wrote a book about her near-death experience, and um, that I heard about it on our on our experiencer forum. And um, her sense of it is that actually the human animal and what we are are two different species. I thought that was kind of interesting. 
And I don't like to put down, like my friend is always talking about getting off this rock, you know, into our higher level dimensions and all. I don't see it like that. I just see how important it is, this experience, how important it is and how sort of blessed we are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I struggle. To be able I mean, to walk it, around like this. It's really quite extraordinary. And I've heard near-death experiences have been in comas a long time talking about all they were aware of was the breeze coming through and lifting the hair on their arms and what a blessing it was. And like we just take it all for granted, you know, but it, it's apparently this is this is it's pretty amazing to get to do what we're doing. And and I'm I'm sort of schizophrenic in that sense because I know yes. exactly what you're saying and I suffer yeah. from depression where like it yes. just feel, feels like the level of sadness or lack of inertia just can be crippling. Okay, now you're, so so let me get back to so that so uh the next morning we wake up Natasha and I we look at each other in the tent like what happened last night? Uh there's a well, a couple elements of the story I'm not going to go into now that we shared that are very weird. Um, and then, you know, I get up, we walk around, and, uh, you know, like I literally walked around the tent looking for where the UFO landed. I didn't find anything. Um, a beautiful morning. I was surprised at how normal everything was. Like I felt calm. Like I didn't feel shattered like I thought I should have felt. Uh, and we go to town and we kind of, well, we're stuck here. We are stuck here for five days. So we went to this place called Canyon de Shea, which is in Arizona. And, and there was someone had said, Ooh, you got to go and do a uh, sweat lodge with this native American shaman. <laughs> so we did it. And so the next day I'm, I take my shirt off. I climb into the sweat lodge. And when I took my shirt off, um, it's actually was the night before but anyway the day and a half later where i took my shirt off and climbed in the sweat lodge uh, i had a scratch that started that i did not have before entering the tent that night i feel very confident in it so i found it the day after uh, or that that after the uh event the terror event in the tent with the floating and everything and i had a scratch that went from my left shoulder to my belly button now this Whoa. yeah it would look like a single cat claw or maybe a single rose thorn just had been dragged across my, so it's very tiny. I mean, you can, you know, like a rose thorn, you know, wouldn't leave a big bloody gash. It just leaves this tiny little scratch. So, but when, now this is where it gets weird. When I looked at it closely, it wasn't a scratch at all. It was, it was like a row of tiny little fluid filled blisters. Whoa. And, and it wasn't continuous. Like it didn't start at my shoulder and end at my belly button, but it was, you know, kind of, faded in and out. I drew, I drew a picture of it. Now, uh, later, uh, now Natasha is involved in UFO research in Germany and I'm involved in UFO research here and we both call ourselves UFO researchers. And, uh, you know, a few days later, the thing heals up. I go into the shower. I, it all washes off. There's nothing. I come out of the shower and I say, hey, this thing washed off. And both of us at the exact same second said, oh, we should have taken a picture of it. Now, that is just as telling having done all this research like that is absolutely normal for people to to including UFO researchers to ignore a key piece of data until after it's disappeared and that is just as normal as when you said you rolled over and went back to sleep after being bumped by the animal there in the middle of the night while sleeping outside there were more than there was more than one too and i just wrote that down when you were talking why wasn't I scared seeing that UFO on Mount Tam? Why wasn't I scared when the small animals woke me up? And why did I just go right back to sleep? And and why most of my I experiences scared? have been completely sucked dry of fear, where they feel almost benign. 
They yeah, feel like, yeah. Which seems weird looking back. It didn't seem weird at the time. Why did I go up there and spend the night? Do you know what I mean? Why oh, wasn't yeah. I scared? Why was I mean? If I wasn't scared when I mean at the time when I saw the UFO, I remember my thoughts very clearly because I was thinking like, well, thank God, you know, maybe there's somebody in the picture who knows more than our crazy ass leaders do, you know. Um, yep. And then and then when the animals woke me up, I have no explanation for that because I mean, if I were lying anywhere and I felt small animals against my back, I would be shrieking. Yep, and I Not have going yeah. back to sleep. Yep. Why didn't I notice any? Why didn't I wonder where that couple was when I woke up? You're Very talking. Sp- you're talking. These are textbook things that show up, and you know, like to have an odd experience and then not take what would be not have the normal reaction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, if, if, I mean, a very, I mean, that certainly could happen, you know, these people, they might've woken up early and just tiptoed away and, and then, uh, but that would be, that would be, that would strike me as odd if, you know. Uh, yeah. And why didn't I even wonder where they were? Yeah. I mean, why didn't I wonder why they showed up? Can you describe them? The couple? They were just like a young white, another white, young white couple. They were younger than I was. And I was maybe 25 or something, 25, 26. And they were maybe 20 or something, and they were just this young hippie couple with like maybe like a, a each of them had a blanket under each other. I mean, they didn't even have sleeping bags. It doesn't make any more sense why they were there than why I was there. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. were they just manufactured so I wouldn't be scared and try to leave or something? I mean, there's the, I mean, people, there's stories all the time. I of, can't of- explain anything about my doing it, and I've never done that anything like that ever in my life. So why I even did it. And again, if some, like you said, ignoring some critical piece of data, if at any point that day when I was thinking of going up, you know, hitchhiking up to the top of Mount Tamas for the night, if somebody had said, so you're going to go right up to that field where you saw the flying saucer, you know, at night by yourself, I would have gone, no, that's a terrible idea. Hell no. What am I thinking? So why didn't I even think of it? Yep. Yep. Yeah, this is this is the now there's an element of you know there's an element of mind control that that shows up in I mean this the literature is just filled with people who say things like oh you know I was lying in bed I got up in the middle of the night I went down and got in my car and drove to this vacant field yeah you know and then and then they'll say oh I hung out for a little while came back home and then I was like wow I left at two in the morning I got home at six in the morning it should have only taken me an hour but it took me you know four hours so those those kind of stories are are the norm in this research going on well the implication is that there's some sort of mind control that's going on uh that you know they are you know whether it's through psychic means or whether they have a little machine that sends a little you know uh thought waves into your brain you know however it takes place it is the implication is that that it is actually taking place i don't know how or why but um uh yeah so there's this this weird mind control element within this whole thing it's really strange. It's all real. What the hell is going on beyond that? I mean, what the hell? I got to tell you one more little thing that's popped into my mind. I went to, you know, Guy Hoddle, the famous Guy Hoddle memo, the FBI Guy Hoddle memo about the Roswell crash that. Oh, it, no. But it's been out there for a while, but for some reason it just was drawing a lot of talk the last couple of years. I don't know if somebody new came across it. It was his – well, I went to school with his son, and he was a right-hand guy of um, Hoover. So, like, I knew about Hoover cross-dressing when I was at Hopkins. So when the Guy Hoddle memo just was sort of hitting, going viral or something online, 
you know, I said, well, let's go. We haven't seen each other for a while. Let's, let's go, you know, get a drink and chat. And um, so I asked him about it. You know, I said, did you know anything about any of this stuff? Because, you know, I know your his dad was head of the, it was called the special agent's office, I think. He was head of the Washington office. But he also functioned as a bodyguard of Hoover's. But his title, you know, he was head of, he was a special agent in charge of the D.C. office. Um, when I asked about it, he said, this is what I can tell you. Don't talk about it in public. Don't have your name associated with it in public because they will disappear you. And that would be the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. Yep. I think that's obviously yep. changed in the we years. Were talk- this was just like – this was not that long ago. This was not that long ago. This was since 2005. Now, he might not be you – know, he's probably not that knowledgeable about it um, because it's not his area of interest. But um, it was after it started getting talked about a lot on Open Minds Forum saying, you know, what do you know about it? And he said, oh, I'm only going to tell you this one thing. Leave it alone. But, you know, he, his dad had been dead for years, so, you know, he might have not been up on what's new. Thank God for people like Greer and all those people at the National Press Club who are just willing to talk. Yeah, Greer's is a nutty dude, and I have very strong opinions of him. But um, I, know, but I yes. do recognize that there are folks out there and, and uh, you know, that that is a, a monumental thing that he did, you know, that uh, he got those folks to – do the initial press conference, which was curiously just before 9-11. So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So that basically got swept under the rug and then no one ever paid any attention to it because it was overshadowed by, you know, the monumental. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. That press conference he did at the National Press Club was since I was on Open Minds Forum. It was the first, it was like in 2007, 2008. Oh, there might have been. So the initial one that he did, there was an initial press club event that took place in War 2011 before 2001 like, I, I want to say like you know may of 2001 i, I, might I be wasn't wrong. even do you know what i mean i didn't even know about any of this stuff at that that wasn't the farthest thing on my mind i was deeply dissertating but um but then as soon as i joined open minds and i found out about the one in, in 2007 um and i realized i was trying to get the admins to get us press you know get us press credentials so you know when he did stuff like that we could go there live and you know, we could be there when it happened. So that's why, that's the only reason I know the data, the one that I'm talking about when all those Boeing guys and McDonnell Douglas and all that were getting up and going, you know, my name is so-and-so retired, whatever air force retired vice president of McDonnell Douglas. And I'm willing to talk to Congress about what I've seen. Yep. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. And so there's, that's the, that's the stuff in a funny way. That like I'm not interested in, you know, like uh, you know, like oh well, you see some lights in the sky or whatever. If you see a craft in the sky, this this, you know, I, I guess I, I am interested. Donald Douglas, let, vice president, saying they they had meetings on alien craft. Yeah, yeah, no. That's so I should, I should, I should, I should be careful what I say because I mean, it's yeah, I'm yeah that 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 uh, uh, you know, I am. I think it's fascinating. I think it's important. It's not where I. I know I'm with you. I'm I'm really interested in the consciousness stuff because I don't think we're talking. You know, I don't think the whole story is in tin cans flying through space. That's very much could be part of it. So, have you talked to Graham Hancock? I I think I'm trying to get a hold of Graham Hancock. Yeah, Yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of Graham Hancock. Yeah, he partially just because this owl thing that that started out as that essay that you read is has now turned into a book project. I'm just like, Oh my God, this has got to be a book because, and Graham Hancock does talk about shamanism and owls. And yeah. And he all kinda, the ways, yeah. mytholo- mythological and folklore links. Um, 
you know, and, and I thought about that when I saw that flying saucer in 71, you know, like if this were, you know, 1400, would I be seeing flying fairies or do you know what I mean? Like, and would you've been burned at the stake for talking about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I mean, even at the time, I'm, I'm like the informant who said the guy showed himself, the being showed himself to me as St. Peter because he knew I would understand by that context what was going on, you know? And, and I mean, but I wondered about that in 71 looking at that craft watching it disappear like that i'm like was it a hologram was it you know does it does it look what i just saw look like a flying saucer is that what it looks like to itself do you know what i mean like yeah i mean is it the same way i mean like is it is it is there like a theatrical presentation that is matching your perception of what a mod like a a a flying craft from another world would look like exactly because it looked just like those ones you would you know it looked like kind of old-fashioned or something do you know what i mean which in 71 would have been my picture of a ufo a little round circular ufo and and so it's so interesting because the 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 reports over the decades change i mean they sort of i mean the the flying triangles were were rarely reported they show up in old literature but but rarely now they're being seen a lot yeah Um, and the rectangle the mile by half a mile rectangular thing that ricky and those people in texas saw you know what's actually showing up and is being documented and being reported is flying square buildings like it looks like you took like a kind of a modern or 1960s uh uh, like a square Malibu house, right, with porches and windows and doors and and literally like you know uh, potted palms on on the balconies, those are being reported. That's what? Abs- I'm total. I'm not exaggerating. People are reporting these flying rectangular box shaped buildings that that have everything that looks. It looks like exactly like a like as if you put a little you know science fiction motor on a Malibu you know beach house and it just flies wow. along with little. And so, you know, is that, you know, if that landed, would you be able to go up and and knock on it with your hand and would it go clunk, clunk, or would your hand pass right through it? Yeah. You know, these are... Yeah, because when Ricky saw the thing take off, I mean, something that big taken off fast would cause treetops to do things. Unless it was a hologram or unless it was being... I mean, on one sense, it could have disrupted time. It could have been in its own little time envelope. So, yeah, I, I, there's yeah. no good answer. But what what it, what you can say for certain is that it didn't have a gasoline engine and a propeller. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, you know, some yeah, folks know a hell of a lot more than we than we know. I know that because whatever made that, yeah, we don't have that technology that we know of to do what I saw on top of Mount Tam. Exactly, and that was Somebody we may does, have that and, technology now, but that I don't think we had it. You know, what is that? Forty-five yeah. years ago, yeah. And 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 you know, and I don't even know that it wasn't an Air Force craft, and you know, maybe they're flying them around to see what we're going to do about it. It's, it's strange times. And um, yeah, and I had an experience which I should I'll, I'll send you a link to this. It's worth reading. This is the experience that kind of changed my world. In, and happened on March 10th of this year, so which that five months ago, uh, and it involved, you know, basically involved. I was sleeping outside. I saw this giant or structure like nearby, and I just rolled over and went to sleep. Um, you know, coyotes were, and there were coyotes. This was another little funny thing. There were this was in southern Utah. There were coyotes howling within, you know, ten yards, less than that of where I was lying down, and I've I've slept out. All over the West, I've, I've heard coyotes way off in the distance. I've heard them fairly close. Never 
ever had a, had them that close. So, wow. you know, is there like, there's, and this is sort of blends into this owl thing. And like, you know, there's this associated phenomena where like our animals attracted, are they, you know, why are, why is that part of the overall story? That would be the story of a native American, you know, spirit quest. You know, I slept outside under the stars and then yep, Mr. Yep, Coyote yep. came and howled near my head. And I took that as a, as an important sign. So, um, that's not my culture. So I don't see it that way, but I do, I can't disregard it as some important puzzle piece in the overall mystery. Now, yeah. So I, you know, I drive home, I realize later, like I look up on Google Maps, there's no big building there. I feel strongly that there ain't a building there. This building would have had to have been gigantic. Um, and uh, then later I have, a, the, later, the next day, I have a psychic flash. It is so hyper vivid. It is, it happens in a blink. It just is an instantaneous download. It basically says, Mike, if you create a map and line these three things up, they'll line up in a straight line. So I sit down at the computer, I get on Google Maps, I line up these three events. One event was the event that I that is the March 10th event. One the other event is the thing in the tent that happened in Cortez, Colorado, which is 231 miles away. Um, and the middle event, right, so you have you have two points on a map. And you can put a straight line between them. That's easy. You can put a straight line between two dots on a, on a right. piece of paper. But on the map, when I zoomed in, like I, I put the three events down first and then I zoomed in on the middle thing and it lined up exactly another spot where I was sleeping outside and had an event with, this is also with this woman, Natasha, a year later um, with owls and orbs and fear. And so anyway, so that one is less overt than the two on each end. Now, the act of creating the map. This is something I've done before. It is something I'm very good at. It is like a little hobby of mine is getting online and playing with little map programs and putting little lines in a map and little pushpins. So the event, and I will also say that I, that I was like, I was driving around the day, early in the day before I slept out that night. And I was like, I got to sleep in this spot. And I had driven down that road once years ago and I thought it was a pretty road and it was kind of lining up with where my destination was and stuff. So it's like, like I was planning to sleep there. It was in my mind. I had a visual image. I'm going to sleep along this road. I slept along that road. It lined up to the, you know, seemingly to the millimeter on the map to make these, this straight line. Uh, And so what that did to me is like it, it was like there was this was so far beyond anything that could have been quantified as random it was i mean i had a psychic knowing that this is how it would play out it it lined up to the to the you know the individual pixel on the map program now uh you know wow. i was basically like okay screw it like i'm beyond the wishy-washy thing at this point like wishy-washy be gone i'm in a new level of i'm in a new chapter of my life where this is real this is really happening it is real uh before then i couldn't have said that now what is weird is that this like it only would have worked for me because i'm the quirky nerdy guy that sits at his computer and plays with maps and that's how it was presented to me. If I, if, if we turn the clock back ten years, and I had to do it on a piece of paper with a with a ruler, and a and a pencil, and line these things up, the the pencil line would have been too thick. Like I have, you know, like like the exactitude of these three things lined up on a map 
the pencil, the actual thickness of the pencil line would have been too thick and it would not have given me the accuracy that I got with the computer. Um, I mean, all three things would have lined up, but right. they, you know, so the, there is, there, it, the way I'm describing it, it was a theatrical presentation designed ex- especially for me and me alone. And that that hyper personalization is something that shows up in this phenomena, and and did that happen on to some degree when you saw the silver craft? You know, was was it was it theatrically presented to you as uh, uh, like a sounds like you're describing almost like a 1950s science fiction movie flying saucer? Right. Right. And I'm wondering at the time, you know, is this, is this a hologram? Do they just project this image? And hologram, I don't think, would have been part of the, your dialogue. It, it, I mean, there was no such thing as a hologram in any meaningful way in 1971. Well, I remember thinking, was it a projection? Maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe the word holograph hadn't come around yet. But, I mean, it struck me. I'm like, it was like a projector, and it just got turned off, you know? I have almost the same event that happened in 1974 when I saw the, the, the craft the structure outside a window and it was flying. It looked like nothing more than a coffee can with a pencil sticking out of the top. It would have been, if it was painted, it would have been painted flat black. The way I describe it, which, which almost took decades afterwards for me to even come up with these vocabulary words because they didn't exist at the time. I would call it traveling weirdly smooth. Like it was, it was, it was traveling in a way that was unlike in a smoothness, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Yeah. That yep, smoothness yep, yep has since shown up in our popular culture in the form of computer-generated animation. You know how, like, real things, like, you know, you watch a real footage of something or you see something out your window, like a bird flies by, right? It has the motion that we can... But if you see a computer-generated version of a bird flying, it has a smoothness that your eye can perceive that seems unreal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so that's how I tell the story in a way now, is that the thing outside the window was weirdly smooth in a way that only now can I look back and say matched computer generated animation. So was it, was there anything there at all? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Anything physical. Hey, how are you holding up? I'm uh, getting a little bit tired. Okay. Yeah. We've been at it for, it's going to be, it's almost, it's 10 minutes away from doing this for two hours. I just looked at the oh clock. My, my computer's, my computer's, you know, is blank yeah. right now. The window, the, uh, the, it went to sleep on me, so I, I got no clock. I had to peek into the kitchen to see the clock. Um, yeah, this has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, yeah. it has. <laughs> yeah, it has. Um, yeah. Good. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I, I, now this is something I, you can arrest me for this, but I didn't tell you this. I, I, actually, this was recorded through the Skype recorder, so we have this entire conversation recorded. Um, I, will, I'm, I have no plans at all to, to, to do anything except use this for uh, my own research at this point. So, um, so that's all I'm going to do is, you know, listen to it and make some notes at listening to it a second time. But I am so glad I recorded this because I feel like we really dug deep. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I was just thinking we, this was a good interview. I know, and this is actually something. So now, in in uh, it would be a great interview. What I may do is send it to you just raw, unedited. I love the editing process with these things. And if there's anything at all, like I feel like this could be a great interview. There's stuff that I assume you'll probably want to snip out people's names or something like that that you probably wouldn't want to use without. I don't know. Who knows? But what I could do is is send you the raw interview if you wanted to listen to it again. It's going to be almost two hours long. But uh, or you know we could. 
go back and forth. I'm not going to worry about it at all right now. I'm a little sort of brain frazzled. Just it seems like we, you know, whatever my synapses are fire. We're firing on overload for a little bit there. So winding Me too. down. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, that's that sounds like a good idea. But we might have a good interview here. And and like you said, you know, I mean, ah, uh, yeah. I you know, I too had the moment of, you know, it was it was after that shamanic awakening experience in in the waking state in the mid nineties of uh, okay, well, you've got the credibility. We can, we have time to get you, so you better go with it. And that's yeah. So that's actually something I've been just like at the point now where I'm kind of fuck it, you know, like, I'm like, like, here's the reality. I am a, I, you know, here's my experiences. And I, and I, and I am, you know, you know, have been as honest as I can be. So that has been like the role I've been, not where I've stepped into this role where I'm like, okay, that's my mission statement for this kind of stuff is I got to be as honest as I can be. That said, there are some experiences that involve individuals. They have chosen not to come forward. I'm not going to use their names. I'm not going to talk about, but that's like 1% of like, you know, what I'm, you know, that's, I'm holding back 1%, um, which doesn't change the big picture of what, you know, what I'm sharing. Okay. All right. And we'll, um, we'll just talk more. We'll just, yeah, I'll, and, I'll be in I touch just... with you. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. And this is, uh, yeah, this is so interesting that, that, I mean, it's like how to say it, like, you know, cause you, you didn't touch at all upon your UFO experiences in any of the interviews, like nothing. And when the only thing that you hinted at is you said you, you had the interview with, um, Oh, what's her name? The woman from Texas, uh, the, um, Angela, Angela Joyner. Yeah. And, and I, uh, um, so I just thought that was like, I mean, Angela Joyner had a little radio program for a little bit where she would interview, you know, ghost researchers and your, you know, and, and other people sort of in that, in the overlapping little circle of paranormal nuttiness there. So, uh, but, and I have to say when I was listening to your stuff, uh, the first thing I heard was a mysterious universe interview, and the second thing I heard was the uh, Alex Alex's interview on Skeptico. Um, you know, I can't, the little voice in the back of my head was just like, "This woman's had a UFO experience." Did you Did you ever find Angelus? I don't have a link. I, to I, I searched and searched and searched, and I could not find it online. And yeah, it seems like the kind I, of I thing that would and be. Then I had to get replace my laptop, and somehow I I didn't bookmark it again or something. I don't even know how I find it. She, I mean, she's a. Yeah, I think she's dropped out of the scene. Yeah, she has. But um, maybe uh, Paul might have it somewhere, and yeah. if he does, I'll get it to you because I talked a bit about, um, you know, the the overlap of those two kinds of experiences, and I, we might have talked more about mine. I don't remember. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this stuff is now. I'm wondering, like, oh shit, what's next? You know, because one thing near death experiences talk about is how contagious it is. Like when you hang around a bunch of near death experiences hang around together. You start getting electrical disturbances and people's abilities same start thing to deepen. With, same thing right? with UFO abductees, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, cultural. You know, it helps to have that cultural support around you. So I'm like, oh, God, now what happens? You know, what's next for Mike and me? So uh, so the owl thing was pretty good, huh? You watched the whole thing? Watched That's it, meaning? Owl service. Oh, yes, yes. You know, it actually is. It's, it's uh, I mean, you're about the right age to have, you know, remember watching BBC uh, uh you know, dramas that were done, you know, in that uh, style. I watched you know? the first one and halfway through the second episode, but it's, I saw on, on your, uh, on the hidden experience site, you said you'd, you'd watch the whole thing. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing process. Hey, we talk about a, a BBC television production from 1969 called The Owl Service. It's based on a book of the same name. The author is Alan Garner. 
uh, I, I touch on it a little bit. I just want to clarify things. There's a book by Jenny Randalls from 1986 titled Beyond Explanation, The Paranormal Experiences of Famous People. And in that book, she talks about the author, Alan Garner, and how he had uh, what amounted to paranormal experiences that uh, surrounded uh, the production, the script writing and the production of this BBC series. Uh, I, I, someone, a reader, sent me an excerpt because it had to do with owls. The entire uh, core of this BBC production, which is great and I highly recommend, uh, if you scroll down just a few posts from this post here, you'll find a link to the entire BBC series, uh, which is called The Owl Service. And, and it's, uh, it's super weird, super moody, uh, it's I, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, it is uh, for someone of my generation. It just has a vibe that uh, is absolutely lost and missing in modern filmmaking. And, and, and what seems so bizarre is that it was it was meant to be a children's program. Uh, the book itself was uh, it was published as sort of a preteen supernatural thrillers long before twilight obviously uh but but man it is it's way intense for for what i would consider a, a children's programming uh it is uh it doesn't have anything to do with ufos it has everything to do with like the uh the the, the underlying mythology that just wants to ooze out and seep out from everywhere uh super creepy wonderful production and uh, and I, anyway, I highly recommend it. So yeah, there's my uh, long-winded uh, little thing to explain exactly what we were talking about. Obviously, um, Suzanne had looked at my blog, scrolled down, and uh, and watched the initial episode of the BBC production of the Owl Service. Okay, back to the interview. I just watched the whole thing, and I finished it last night. Um, I was kind of blown away. You know, it's the the ending isn't what it ain't a Hollywood ending. Let me put it that way. Um, and, uh, but it was just such a, such a timepiece of filmmaking and such a weird script that, that I, that I couldn't help but being smitten. It just gets by the last couple episodes, man, things just get so weird. Uh, you know, there's just, it just builds and builds and builds. It's so British. And there's like, in a sort of peering into this other, culture all the stuff of you know the class relationships and the you know the the tensions between the rural welsh and the you know the folks that live in this you know this uh, privileged life in london you know uh so there's all these levels going on so yeah so if you enjoyed the first few it just gets more and more intense really yeah just can you just tell me like what what the hell is going on in it real quick hey yeah yeah so there's a there's an old ancient welsh um uh, Fairy based tale. on an old myth or something, Yeah, it's right? an, based on an old fairy tale. And these characters start living the myth. They start living the, the – the, you know, there's a triangle of the two boys that live in the house and the, and the girl. And the girl. And so there's this kind of like sort of tension, love triangle between all of them. And then they're vying and they're, you know, in it in the class. And so – but that's that's in the realm of the, of the myth. And so they're basically living it out. And it's the one guy, the, the, the gardener. Uh, who has the incredibly thick Welsh accent, you know, kind of explains everything, but it's, his accent is so thick. And I think every third word out of his mouth is like probably, you know, some sort of ancient Welsh dialect that like he almost can't follow it. So like, you know, he's explaining the myth, but the, you can't follow it. So it just, it, it makes it even more surreal in a way okay. for me. Um, uh, but yeah, so they're, they're basically acting out these mythological things okay. in their own experience. Um, and, and obviously the, you know, you can, 
and that is exactly what the the uh, I can Alan. Not Alan Garner. I think Alan Garner is the name of the author. Yeah. So Alan Garner, uh, you know, wrote it with that in mind. Okay. And um, you know, was a mythologist as well as a. Uh, uh, he's a very spiritual dude. I just part of the like I, I watched a YouTube interview with the author, uh, Alan Garner, who wrote the screenplay, and uh, and supposedly the way I this the way I got turned on to this is someone. I do all this owl stuff on my blog now. So someone sent me this thing and said, oh, here's an interesting owl story. It was uh-huh. an excerpt from a book, basically odd experiences by famous people. And, and Alan Garner, when it, this BBC production, you know, when they were filming it in 1969, the cast and the crew and the production was at the receiving end of paranormal experiences and lots of synchronicities, lots of owl sightings. So the actual production itself was sort of done in this cloud of paranormal synchronicities which which the the movie has that vibe to it for sure cool so. thank you <laughs> okay that was a long yeah i went to film school so yeah get me started it's hard to shut <laughs> me up so um well great this is great i'm so glad we had a chance to say hello and this is uh this was, this was awesome really interesting and uh who knows what will happen now who knows yeah like uh uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll keep our, keep track of your dreams tonight. So I know, right? Okay. Well, you know what? To be continued. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was great. Bye now. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, this is Mike. I'm chiming in uh, here at the summation of the entire uh, conversation. Yeah, I, I want to point something out uh, that to me I take very seriously, uh, and that is um, Suzanne's. Her, her just her willingness to to share so deeply. Yeah, I mean it's it's not hidden in there. Boy, there's a point where uh, it's interesting. I say something to the effect of, uh, you know, my mission statement for this thing is is just to uh, is not trying to, to convince anyone, but to be as honest as possible. Uh, then uh, Susan pretty much says, you know, let's uh, let's do a real interview, and uh, and it was at that point that uh, I realized that she was, you know content and open to sharing some of these experiences publicly and and by publicly i you know talking about the experience with the the ufo uh, outside of san francisco as well as the follow-up very strange camping story now uh i said as much during the interview i'm going to say as much now there is not a clean delineated line as to as to what would make someone a ufo abductee i think it's very blurry. She tells a story that seems to imply something very strange. At the same time, it's very difficult to make that leap to something that has such intense social stigma as, as you know, I've nothing that declares yourself insane uh, in our society more than saying that you are a UFO abductee. And, and, I, and I feel like I can say that with some insight. Um, now, a, a few things. Uh, Suzanne rattled off a lot of of references to documents and to academic papers as well as to links um i tried to make some notes and uh, i'm including some of those uh, i apologize i'm not including all of those uh, if anyone digs them up and, and looks them up uh, feel free to post them on the comment section uh, I, my sense is that if she referenced them i bet you they're interesting i'm very impressed with the way this woman frames the totality of these experiences. 
Now, here's one thing that I, I really took away from this. Uh, Suzanne used an acronym that I'd never heard before, but I like it a lot. Uh, she refers to the STE. Um, she says it a bunch of times during the thing, you know, that people will experience an STE. Now, that's an acronym for Spiritually Transformative Experience. And uh, I, obviously, we talk about it a lot in the in the program, but um, the, an STE, a Spiritually Transformative Experience, seems to be at the core of so many of these paranormal events. Uh, it just There's a blurring, once again, between UFO abduction and, and near-death experience and the Kundalini experience and the shamanic initiation. It's all, it, the, you know, that, I, anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I like the term STE. I'm going to start using it. Now, I, I said this at the beginning. I'm going to say it again now. Uh, I am going to encourage anyone who has listened to this entire interview to go to listen to two other interviews. One is on Mysterious Universe. It's linked in the show notes. And the other is through Skeptico, and that is also linked in the show notes. These two interviews, uh, in combination with this one here, I, I think they paint a very in-depth and fascinating look at the research that Suzanne has been doing. And I'm heartened by her open-mindedness and her intense inquiry into these things. Uh, it's both very personal uh, and, and fascinating, obviously, for both her uh, and I'll have to say for me, very much so. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.